Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I'm grateful to Peterson Toscano and Citizens Climate Radio for their quarterly contributions to Spirit in Action. Certainly because of the high quality content and production, and certainly because of the vital importance of the guests and issues that are all included, all of these are important. But I have another personal reason to welcome the fact that Peterson is sitting in for me today, and it is likely related to climate change. You see, this is my fourth year tapping maple trees for syrup, and the norm is to be geared up for this at roughly the end of February. But this year, here in Wisconsin, we hit early spring in January, at a time that we usually expect to have a week of sub-zero days and nights. The point is that we're in maple syrup season a month early, and I need as much flexible time as possible to tap, haul, and cook maple sap to syrup. So thank you, Peterson, for sitting in for me today. And the good news for all of you listeners is that I'm going to hand the microphone over to Peterson Toscano so that we can harness the incisive and creative talents of Citizens Climate Radio to work on climate change. Over to you, Peterson. Thank you, Mark. And thanks for listening to Spirit in Action. I like talking about solutions and good news, which is important when you do climate work. Our show today is filled with both you will hear about the power of forest, not only in regulating the climate, but in promoting justice and health. And we will get a whole slew of good news stories, including an incredibly innovative, creative way of dealing with an abandoned coal mine. Oh, it is amazing, this new way of generating energy from an old mine. I absolutely adore walking in the woods, especially in big forests. I grew up in the Catskill Mountains in the U.S. state of New York. My grandmother's house sat on the edge of 10 acres of hilly woods. I explored every nook and cranny of it. I picked wild blueberries and walked up and down the stream that ran through it looking for brightly colored salamanders. Then when I went to university in New York City, I regularly explored the rambling woods in Central Park and Van Cortlandt Park. Forests are not only beautiful, they are an essential part of our efforts to regulate the climate. This is true in rural spaces and in cities. Today's episode includes conversations about different types of forests. It has plenty of geeky stuff for tree nerds and important insights for climate advocates. In this show, you will hear from a group of students at Allegheny College in Pennsylvania who tell us about the food forests they proposed, designed, and planted. The students reveal the important steps it took to gain approval and cooperation from faculty, staff, and fellow students. To tell us about large forests, we feature Van Wagner. Van is a former forester and coal miner who now teaches science in a high school. But most people in central Pennsylvania know Van as a storyteller and singer-songwriter. 
I attended one of his performances earlier this year. In it, Van Wagner revealed historical facts about the harvesting and transporting of trees before the time of railroads. You may be surprised to learn who did this work and how they did it with sustainability in mind. As part of an effort to promote healthy forests, Van has been spending time climbing very tall trees. And you'll hear the chat I had with Taylor Lightman. Taylor leads an effort to revitalize the country town of Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Walk around the town and you will see old fashioned lanterns, Victorian buildings, and many trees lining the street. Taylor tells me, though, many more trees are needed and why. He outlines for us the many benefits of tree planting as he shares insider tips and recommendations. Oh, and Dina Nucitelli joins us with the Nerd Corner. He shares even more insights into trees and forests. Let's begin in Penn's Woods, or the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. PA has a legacy of being one of the more heavily wooded states in the USA. The Pennsylvania Department of Conservation and Natural Resources states that forests cover more than 60% of Pennsylvania. That is over 15 million acres. This includes deep forests in the northern tier. In the south, you will find forested ridges. Throughout the state, various woodlots and urban and community forests abound. Even though this land was covered in trees for thousands of years, most of the trees today are younger than 100 years old. Now that may sound old to some people, but the eastern pine tree can live up to 400 years. Left undisturbed by loggers, maple and oak trees can live for 300 years or more. And the eastern hemlock can grow to over 100 feet and live for 800 years. But when you walk through the millions of acres of forest in Pennsylvania, you'll see that only 1% of that is original old-growth forest. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, logging companies engaged in an intense period of logging and deforestation. They strip the mountains bare. But it wasn't always this way. There is a much longer history of sustainability and stewardship in these lands. The Susquehannock, Haudenosaunee, and Lenape, among other original inhabitants, maintained the land so it remained rich in wildlife. And while early European settlers did clear land for crops and towns, they also recognized the forests were important to protect. That is some of what Van Wagner shares in his presentations about the Susquehanna River Valley. A former coal miner and forester, Van now teaches agriculture science at Danville Area High School. Earlier this year, I heard Van sing his original songs about local history and tell stories about days gone by. He also told us about his ambitious 
and slightly dangerous campaign to get people thinking about forests. All I need is my crosscut song, my double bit axe and trees to fall. The spring is coming, I can smell it all around. era of taking white pine down the Susquehanna River to the markets in southern Pennsylvania. Your ancestors did this for going on 200 years. This was a staple in the Susquehanna Valley. And I can't stress that enough. This is your family story. I have a lot of folks that will tell me like, oh, no, no, my family, we weren't loggers. We were farmers. Farmers is who that song is about. There were not loggers. That word logger is a fairly modern word. The idea that a person who would go out in the woods and cut 12 months of the year with a cross-cut saw, that's a fairly modern, that's like Civil War era. Before that, America got its lumber from farmers. They would go out in the winter months and they'd cut white pine and they'd skid it to the edge of the river or if you were on a creek, you'd skid it there first and then float it down. They didn't just float the logs. Your ancestors put them together in a platform. They would attach their logs together. And then they would float their logs, their private property, to Marietta, Lancaster County. If you want a round number, I usually tell audiences, about $100 for a log raft. And it took a family of five to get in there. It was usually dad or granddad and a couple kids or brother-in-laws helping. So is $100 a lot of money in the 1830s, 40s, 50s? Well, you're a farmer. Farmers don't make money. They make food. You know, So it was one of the few cash commodities that farmers could make. If you were from up in the rural parts of the state. So it was the only thing that you could grow on your property and get to market while it was still fresh. Can't do that with dairy in the 1830s and 40s. So whiskey, furs, and white pine were some of the things your ancestors could produce and then ship down in the spring. I laugh when I read in my textbook, and in the textbook it says that the environmental movement began in 1970 with the first Earth Day. Okay, God bless those of you that were in 1970, the first Thursday. That's an important thing. That's not when it started. My German ancestors here in the Susquehanna River Valley, they knew about sustainability. You didn't ruin the family farm. You didn't cut all the trees down. That's your money for next year. And these kids, when they grow up, they're going to make money off that stand of trees. Give those folks credit in our, in our story. I'm trying to climb to the highest point in all 67 counties of Pennsylvania. And when I get there... I'm climbing the highest tree I can find. You might say, that's just an attention getter. Yes, it is. <laughs> I'm trying to get the press's attention, and when they stick a microphone in my face, I talk about trees and forestry, and it's working beautifully. I'm very passionate about Pennsylvania's forests. I think maybe it's the teacher in me. I don't know, but I, I find I get heartbroken when I run into other Pennsylvanians that maybe aren't passionate or at least knowledgeable about the forest. And so it gives me about 10 seconds of America's attention to say, Forests are really important. Learn more. And that's all I'm trying to do. So I've already done Northumberland County, Montour, Union, Schuylkill. And then yesterday I did three and one. I, I did uh, Columbia County, Luzerne County, and Sullivan County. And then I went home and slept. That was hard. I don't plan on doing three in one day again. But um, <laughs> Yeah, how much life insurance are you carrying? <laughs> <laughs> I do tree work. And there's this weird thing that happens in my head when I'm climbing. I'm going up high. 
Once I get to a point where from here up, I know I'm not going to wake up if I hit, I'm actually pretty relaxed at that. <laughs> but getting to that point, I hate that. It's like that first 60 feet, I really don't like. That was Van Wagner. As of this recording, he's climbed trees in 27 of the 67 Pennsylvania counties. You can learn more about him, hear his music online, and read his articles about coal mining, forest, and history. Visit vanwagnermusic.com. If you want to track his progress climbing trees, just Google Van Wagner Highest Climbs. I put links in the show notes for you. Coming up, two of my guests reveal the many benefits of growing more trees in cities and towns. You would think planting trees is a no-brainer, but tree planters face challenges they must overcome. Have you ever experienced biting into a fruit or a vegetable that you picked yourself from an orchard or a garden? It has to be one of my greatest pleasures. I never pass by juicy blackberries or mulberries without picking and eating a bunch. When I heard college students created a food forest on their campus, I had to learn more about it. Earlier this year, I attended the Northeast Student Farmer Conference at Penn State University. Three students from Allegheny College led a breakout group about the process of pitching the idea of a food forest. They explained the steps, many steps, to get it approved, planned, and planted. Allegheny is a celebrity campus for people in the world of sustainability. It is one of the very first universities in the United States to achieve climate neutrality. If you want to make a difference on your own campus or in your community, Ashlyn Peachy, Nicholas Waddington, and Katie Mallory have an answer. A food forest. I recorded their presentation. Here are highlights from it. Allegheny College is really devoted to doing our part in fighting climate change and the impact of climate change on our campus. And as one of the first colleges to achieve carbon neutrality in the country, we have been consistently supported by our administration. There have been a number of initiatives spearheaded by both faculty and students in areas like forestry and pollinator support, sustainable agriculture, renewable energy, and a lot of food waste management as well. If you're not familiar, Food Forest is a diverse planting of mostly edible crops, which when planted together, amplify their natural benefits and increase mutualistic relationships with the goal of mimicking the patterns and systems we see naturally occurring ecosystems. 
It provides a lot of climate and ecosystem services, like filtering rainwater, preventing erosion, improving soil health, and increasing microorganism activity. Forest garden is split into seven layers. By stratifying that and by creating distinct layers, you can plant and reduce species competition for resources, which allows you to maximize the use of your space and really build some, some good relationships between crops. Food forest is also an example of permaculture, which is a design framework that was popularized by David Holmgren and Bill Mollison, although it's strongly rooted in indigenous knowledge and land management practices. It really emphasizes community care, land stewardship, and equitable distribution of resources, which highlights community environment that's anchored in respect and reciprocity. Permaculture really brings out the best in the members of its guilds. And that's not only plants, that's also the communities who try and practice permaculture. Yeah, from our combined years of engagement with this project, we've really taken away that climate and campus resilience is hugely community-driven project. It doesn't work like guilds when you're isolated from those around you. We're stronger and more productive when we work together. If you want to learn more about their food forest and the details around their climate neutrality achievement, I put links in our show notes. Visit cclusa.org slash radio. Taylor Lightman. I grew up in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and that's where I currently live. I went to college in Northfield, Minnesota, and then I also went to grad school in Lund, Sweden, where I did my master's in disaster risk management and climate change adaptation. I'm trying to figure out a way to do climate smart neighborhood revitalization. I think there's no better place to do that in in one's hometown. Currently, I'm the uh, director of a small nonprofit called Lewisburg Neighborhoods, and we're the neighborhood revitalization coordinator for the borough of Lewisburg. The borough of Lewisburg is delightfully cozy little town nestled on the banks of the Susquehanna River, one of the oldest river valleys in the world, older than the Nile. I would imagine the average person coming, say, from Philadelphia or parts of New York would come to Lewisburg and say, wow, this is a green oasis. It's such a beautiful paradise, this rural village. I guess it's a village. Is it considered a city? They'd call it a borough. Yeah. You know, it's just trees and green everywhere. It's amazing. What's your response to that person? There's two, there's two ways that I would respond to that. The first is, is this moment of gratitude. We do have a great urban forest because of decades of people putting in the work growing trees. And these trees are a testament to that labor. So it's gratitude for all of that work that's brought us to this current moment. But then also, and this is probably because I walk around a lot and look at places where trees can be, I see unfinished work. It's gratitude and then it's acknowledgement of, well, yeah, well, we, it's beautiful, but we, we still have work we need to do. And there's, there's still trees we need to grow. I think more and more people are hearing more and more buzz about trees. And yeah. Republicans have had a plan to plant lots of trees. Why are trees particularly important in this time in history? Trees do a lot of things for us. 
in a lot of things for the environment, very material things like sequestering carbon, filtering stormwater, particulate matter outside of the out of the air. But they also provide habitat for the biome, you know, all the flora and fauna that are a part of our town too. Beyond the material things that they provide us, they also do a lot for us emotionally as well. I, I There's something very uneasy that happens when I find that I'm walking on a treeless street, no shade. I just feel like I'm exposed in some ways. And it turns out that there is something to that. Streets with trees on them, the shops do better. They get more customers when there's trees on the streets. You know, and then also we know that when people are driving on streets and roads with trees, they behave less aggressively too, and they drive slower. Trees give us tangible things and, you know, material benefits, but they also give us things that are, that are a little bit elusive, but, but very real as well. With your studies in climate change and addressing disaster, what roles do trees play on a rapidly changing planet? If we're going to really try and hit this 1.5 degree mark, which I think is still attainable. Carbon sequestration is definitely a part of that solution because I don't think we're going to hit that with emissions reductions alone. And trees are a great way to do that, sequester carbon. But then they also do these things like filter out stormwater and absorb stormwater and uh, prevent erosion and all kinds of things that really help us out from a variety of different hazards that are going to increase in severity with the changing climate. But we hear about like these urban heat islands, but you don't live in a city. Well, there's even microclimates on a street. If you're on a shaded street, I think that can be sometimes up to 10 degrees cooler than, than one that has no trees. So trees are a win, 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 win. And I would imagine there's no one who is opposed to trees at all. And like a town that you live in, everyone's happy. They're like, yeah, 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 more trees, more trees. Is that right? That's not what I've encountered. There's sometimes an opposition to planting trees and growing trees in a town. And I don't quite understand that. There's often some pushback when the suggestion to plant trees is around. And some of that is stuff that I, I, I don't understand and I don't have a good way to articulate that. But I think there is also something about people often plant trees and then don't have a plan to take care of them that can be discouraging for some people. Maybe they've been burned by a tree plant in the past and have some past trauma that they're, that they're working out in the public realm. That's actually something that as activists and organizers and as people that are just involved even in our, on our block that we can take from that criticism. How can we plant and grow a tree? You've noticed that I've been using the word, how, how do we grow trees? Water it every summer, that sort of thing. Make, make sure that it's being cared for, that it's being responsibly pruned if, if there's a, a dangerous branch that, that arises. I think we all should recenter that. How do we grow trees? I think trees also have kind of a spiritual quality about them too. They're sort of the monks or elders of a town that silently keep watch over generations. They really are a testament to the work that people did a long time ago to grow these things. So it's cool to be a part of that legacy. And I hope people take this knowledge and grow a tree. That was Taylor Lightman, Program Manager for Lewisburg Neighborhoods. When he is not making his community a better place, Taylor loves to ride his bike, collect books, and travel. 
To round off this conversation about trees, Dana Nucitelli joins us for another segment of the Nerd Corner. Hi, I'm Dana Nucitelli, CCL Research Coordinator, and this is the Nerd Corner. I'm here to highlight some interesting new climate research for the nerds out there and to make it understandable for the nerd curious. In this episode, we consider the question, what are the different ways we would benefit from planting more trees in cities and towns? This question is critical to CCL's Healthy Forest Policy Area. According to research from scientists at the Nature Conservancy, planting more urban trees in the United States has the potential to capture up to 100 million tons of carbon dioxide pollution per year. That's equivalent to removing about 20 million cars from the road, or all of the gasoline-powered cars in the entire state of Texas. But planting trees in cities doesn't just help the climate, it also benefits people's physical and mental health. For example, as global warming brings increasingly frequent and extreme heat waves, urban trees improve our resilience to that heat by providing shade and releasing water into the air. Tree canopies also provide a measure of protection from the sun's harmful ultraviolet rays. A number of studies have also found that exposure to urban forests generally reduces people's mental and physical stress, anxiety, and depression, and that they improve our moods. Research shows that people live more active lifestyles when living near urban forests, They also tend to have healthier immune systems, lower incidences of cardiovascular disease, and feel a greater sense of connectedness, belonging, and trust. And students on school campuses with greater tree cover perform better academically. But while people in communities with more trees live longer, happier, healthier lives on average, America has a tree inequity problem. Communities of color have 33% less tree canopy on average than majority white communities, and neighborhoods with the highest poverty rates have 41% less tree coverage than the wealthiest communities. Our friends at American Forests created a tool at treeequityscore.org with data about the level of tree inequity in every community around the country. Check out treeequityscore.org to see where tree planting would be the most effective in your community to remedy this tree inequity problem. I'm Dana Nicitelli with The Nerd Corner. Thank you for being curious and for your commitment to climate progress. To join the discussion about climate science, technology, economics, and policy with CCL's research team, check out The Nerd Corner at cclusa.org slash nerd-corner. That's cclusa.org slash nerd-corner. I hope to see you there. Thank you, Dana. Much more ahead, including some good news stories and even a little bit of climate comedy. Yeah, climate change can be funny. We can all look forward to funny stuff about climate change in the second half, but I'll remind you, this is Spirit in Action. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and we'll get back to Citizens Climate Radio in Peterson, Toscano in just a moment. Our website is northernspiritradio.org with 18 and a half years of Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul on our site, links to all our guests and our guest hosts like CCR, and a place for you to comment, to give us feedback and directions, and maybe even support us by making a donation via our site. This world needs media, not at the beck and call of corporations, and serving you, the listeners, and the world. You make it possible with your support. That's how we maintain sustainability. 
Please help Northern Spirit Radio and Citizens Climate Radio and all the world healers you can find, and together this world will have a chance. Without your help, the task becomes all that more daunting. And keep in mind the fine work of so many volunteers at all of the amazing community radio stations that carry our programs, including our newest station, WMTN-LP, in Sewanee, Tennessee. Whether you get our programs via broadcast or podcast, there are so many fine folks involved in keeping open the honest channels of communication. Support them, or maybe be one of them. I'm grateful for your support. But enough of me, over to the talented and world-healing work of Citizens Climate Radio in Peterson, Toscano, sitting in for me today as I cook our maple sap tonight. You're listening to Spirit in Action. I'm Peterson Toscano, and I'm sharing with you all kinds of good news stories. I sat down with my team recently, and I asked them each to look for a good news story. And they found some things that I didn't even know was going on, which is so often the case when dealing with climate change. We hear about the gloom, the doom, the failures. But there are so many people working in so many places with creative solutions including an amazing solution about a coal mine. Like, what do you do with an abandoned coal mine, especially when it gets filled up with water? Well, we hear good news out of England. As a climate advocate, I need to hear good news stories. To find these stories, though, I have to look beyond traditional news sources. Yes, we must hear about the dangerous impacts of climate change. Journalists also need to bear witness to the failures of governments when they do not act on climate. And in the midst of all that, climate advocates like you and me, we also need to hear about successes and breakthroughs. This episode, we celebrate some of the good news that my team and I have found for you. Lily Russian, Karina Taylor, and Horace Moe will each share with you good news stories about what is happening in the climate change sphere. I will also share with you some good news about what you can expect from our show in 2024. We have some very, very special projects coming your way. We begin with a good news story from Lily Russian. Lily served as a CCR team member intern this semester. What can we do with the world's abandoned coal mines? A town in the UK might just have the answer. In Gateshead, England, an old coal mine has been providing green energy for the last six months. The groundbreaking project uses the warm water from the tunnels to heat hundreds of homes and businesses in the former coalfield community. The project is the UK's first large-scale mine water heating network. It shows the potential of using abandoned mines to reduce our carbon emissions. After decades of neglect, Britain's abandoned coal mines gradually flooded. Warmed by the earth, this water could become a key part of our renewable energy future. Geologists estimate that Britain's mine shafts contain over 2 billion cubic meters of warm water. I mean, that is a lot of water. This makes them one of the largest untapped sources of clean energy in the country. In the United States alone, there are almost 50,000 abandoned coal mines. This innovative project in the UK demonstrates the remarkable potential our world has to transform these relics of the past into valuable assets for a green future. But how does it work? Water in mines gets hotter the deeper it goes. 
At depths of one kilometer, water can reach up to 40 degrees Celsius. That's 104 degrees Fahrenheit. The water is then pumped up from the mine and passed through heat pumps, which raise its temperature even higher. The hot water is then piped to buildings where it can be used to heat them. Once the water has cooled down, it is pumped back into the mine system to be heated up again. I love what John Elroy has to say about this solution. He is a cabinet member for the Environment and Transport at Gateshead Council. He says, What we have in Gateshead is a legacy from the days of the coal mines, which was dirty energy. Now, we are leading the way in generating clean, green energy from those mines. To learn more about this project, visit gateshead.gov.uk. I put a link in the show notes for you over at cclusa.org slash radio. If you have a good news story you want to share, contact us. The email address is radio at citizensclimate.org. Thank you, Lily. Although Lily Russian's internship is officially over, you will hear her voice a lot in 2024. Later in the show, I will tell you about the special limited series Lily Horace and I have been creating for you. Speaking of Horace, he has put together a good news story for you. Hi there, this is Horace, here with the good news on climate change. Are you concerned about the impact of global warming on marine ecosystems? Do you worry about how ocean biomes are affected by climate change? If you are, I'm on the same side with you. But folks, don't panic yet. I have an uplifting message about protecting the world's oceans for you today. I want you to first imagine a gathering of 400 world leaders and changemakers. I mean, wouldn't be great if they came together to do something about the oceans? These leaders and changemakers include, but are not limited to, conservation experts, business representatives, local communities, and indigenous peoples groups. The good news is, such a meeting just happened. On October 11, 2023, the IUCN Leaders Forum hosted a two-day conference for a diverse group of leaders and changemakers in Geneva, Switzerland, to discuss the future of global oceans. So, what is the IUCN Leaders Forum? Well, IUCN is short for the International Union for Conservation of Nature. The IUCN Leaders Forum that brings global leaders together to discuss innovative solutions and catalyzes impactful action in nature conservation and sustainability. At the end of this year's forum, President Roseanne Al-Mubarak proudly announced the launch of Ocean Breakthroughs. It is a global marine conservation and climate action initiative. The Ocean Breakthroughs aim to improve five key ocean sectors. Marine conservation, ocean renewable energy, shipping, aquatic food, and coastal tourism. Sounds exciting, right? Moreover, Successfully implementing ocean breakthroughs will help reduce global greenhouse gas emissions by up to 35% by 2050. I believe all participants at the forum set a great example to mobilize global support in saving world oceans. The impact 
will further raise public attention for the major and annual international climate meeting, the United Nations Climate Change Conference. Hopefully, the conference can further scale up the effort of saving oceans. I am sure, with our determination and an increasing sense of urgency to take climate action, more climate change good news will transpire in the future. As I'm wrapping up with our good news story today, if you want to learn more about this story, you can always visit iucnleadersforum.org. If you have a good news story to share with the public, please email us at radio at citizensclimate.org. Thank you, Horace. I'm pleased to announce that Horace will continue his internship with Citizens Climate Radio for another six months. Horace is a recent graduate with BA in Environmental Studies from the University of Michigan. He now lives in China and works for a hoisting machinery manufacturing company. In his spare time, Horace enjoys weightlifting, watching sports, nature sightseeing, and reading history. Our next good news story comes from COP28. I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel cynical about these gatherings of nations, non-governmental organizations, and corporations. The process often feels convoluted and slow-moving. There's not a lot of bang for the buck. Many young people express their extreme frustration and displeasure with the adults who do not do enough to address the causes and impacts of climate change. According to a Wall Street Journal article and many other news sources, this year's COP has resulted in an historic step forward. In an unprecedented move, nations have agreed for the first time to begin the transition away from fossil fuels. This historic decision marks a pivotal moment in our global climate narrative. The United Arab Emirates, under the leadership of Sultan Al-Jabbar, has successfully brokered a compromise. This deal, born from all-night talks, is not just a statement, but a robust action plan to hasten our journey towards net-zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. For the first time, a UN climate agreement explicitly calls for governments to cut back on all fossil fuels. This is a significant shift. Especially considering the past resistance from major fossil fuel producers and rapidly developing nations. In fact, this is the first time one of these agreements has actually included the words fossil fuels in them. And coming through, coming through, Tony? Tony Bafuzio? Yeah, this is Tony Bafuzio from the Bronx. Well, it's, it's great to see you, but I'm actually in the middle of telling a good news story. <laughs> you call that good news? Yeah, well, it's a step forward. It's, it's historic. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I did something historic this week. I tried plain no-fat Greek yogurt for the first time, and it made me want to puke. A lot like this good news story of yours. Well, you sound about as sour as that yogurt. Listen, Peterson, this is a group that almost 30 years ago set themselves up with big plans to tackle greenhouse gas emissions leading to global warming. All this time, and they finally said out loud what everyone already knew. Extracting and burning fossil fuels is the cause of climate change. 
I know slow and steady wins the race, but this is like watching a snail moving through a pile of jello with two other snails on its back. All right, Tony, I hear you. You know, this decision hasn't come without its critics. Some environmental groups worry about potential loopholes for the fossil fuel industry, but it is important to acknowledge the strides taken, even as we recognize the journey ahead. Sorry, I'm not buying it. All right, but what do you think we should do instead? Well, what, what, what do I think? I'll tell you what I know. I know that when people get off their butts and talk to their members of Congress, it makes a difference. And not just one person, not just a dozen, but thousands and thousands in every congressional district in the USA and beyond telling lawmakers we need smart solutions now. You mean solutions like a CBAM? Yeah, CBAM, Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. Exactly. You know, when I first heard about CBAM, I thought it had something to do with the holiday meal. What do you mean? Like, some imported food might now be unavailable? No, not that. It's like when you sit down for a big Bufuzio family meal. I eat so much, too much. I can't move. I get all gassy. I got to loosen my belt or put on sweatpants. It's my post-meal carbon border adjustment mechanism. But no, a CBAM is a fee placed on imports of goods that are carbon intensive. The EU is working on this right now. We need to get in that game. Yes, I hear you. There is a lot we can do without the UN or global agreements. The USA has vast power in the world and so much influence. That's why we need to talk to the people who make the laws. They know it has to happen. And we have great solutions like CBAM, carbon fee and dividend and permitting reform. And those ideas are really getting traction. More and more laws are being introduced by Republicans and Democrats and bipartisan. So yeah, if you really want to become part of something historic, visit cclusa.org slash action. Today, you can do something significant, something historic. You don't even have to fly all the way across the world to do it. <laughs> that website again is cclusa.org slash action. Thank you, Tony, for crashing my good news story. Yeah, well, you know, someone's got to keep an eye on you. Coming up, more good news. Plus, I reveal big plans ahead for Citizens Climate Radio. Stay tuned. Are you looking to improve your skills as a climate communicator? To increase your impact in your community and beyond? Or maybe get a brush up on climate change science basics? Citizens Climate offers free online trainings. You can choose from pre-recorded interactive trainings that you go through at your own pace or join us Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for live trainings. To see a list of our trainings, visit community.citizensclimate.org. At the top of the screen, click on Resources and Trainings. There you'll find a link to all training topics. That website again is community.citizensclimate.org. My name is Zara Amer. I am the founder of the Climate Change Project and the creator of this podcast. The Change, Women, Technology, and the Anthropocene features climate academics, scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, and other key members of the global climate tech ecosystem. The medium is very much the message here. Our interviewees are the change. They are all women, all working climate tech and science, inhabiting top jobs and operating at a unique level in specialized positions that bridge and intersect the gender equity, climate science, and climate tech worlds. 
Over the course of season one and the upcoming seasons, we will map and define the global climate tech ecosystem and highlight the extraordinary boundary women developing, financing, and procuring climate tech all over the world. Season one is comprised of 10 episodes, and most of those episodes follow a scripted interview format, with my friend Antoinette kindly stepping in to read out my interview questions on the episodes I was unable to host myself. We look forward to embarking on this journey with you, a journey that my team and I will pursue with all our curiosity, sometimes imperfectly, and almost always with a complex climate conscience. We don't profess to have all the answers, but we're asking the right questions. You already heard from Lillian Horace. Now we have a good news story from Karina Taley. But first, congratulations are in order. Over the last year, Karina has been working on an accelerated master's degree in global strategic communications with a certificate in science communications. This month, she graduated and earned her degree. Hi, everyone. I'm Karina with a good news story for you. I'm from Miami, Florida, and I grew up near the ocean. Protecting Earth seas is really important to me. So I was really excited when I heard about the High Seas Treaty currently in the United Nations. The High Seas are the parts of the ocean that are not controlled by any country. They cover two-thirds of the world's oceans. How much of that do you think is protected? Surely two-thirds of it, right? Maybe half? Actually, only about 1% of that is currently protected. If the treaty comes into effect, large parts of the ocean will gain protection from oil drilling and other damaging human activities. These regions will be kind of like gigantic national parks, but in the ocean. The High Seas Treaty will also regulate how countries and companies take the ocean's resources so they are used more equitably. Lastly, it will update how countries conduct environmental impact assessments. Essentially, there will be a new and improved way to record what's happening in the high seas. The result? A big win for the ocean and its wildlife. This treaty has been in the works for almost two decades. Last spring, the UN finally decided on the terms of the agreement. It was then translated into the six official languages of the UN. Earlier this fall, 76 countries and the European Union signed it. That's 103 countries, and there's still time for more countries to sign it. Although these countries signed the High Seas Treaty, 60 nations still need to ratify it before it comes into effect. Each country has a different ratification process, so it will take some time. Fortunately, the treaty performed way better than expected, and that makes me very optimistic. This global commitment to protect the ocean shows that most of the world wants to see the high seas flourish. Personally, I'm excited that I get to keep enjoying the ocean here in Miami. I'm hopeful that future generations will have that same privilege. Want to learn more about the latest status of the High Seas Treaty? Visit treaties.un.org.
Thank you, Karina. And before we end our show, I have good news for you about Citizens Climate Radio. After 91 consecutive monthly episodes without missing a single month, we will take a very brief pause. In February 2024, we will start Season 2 of Citizens Climate Radio. Yeah, I know. Seven years is a very long season for Season 1. In 2024, my team and I will premiere two special limited series. Karina Taylor and I have been working on a Spanish-language podcast called Voces del Cambio, Voices of Change. In it, we will highlight countries and regions in Latin America. We will explore a particular problem related to climate change and then share creative solutions that are proposed or enacted to address the problem. The show will be completely in Spanish. In each episode, we will direct listeners to tuclimavivible.org. This is CCL's Spanish-language website. Voces del Cambio will air on a different podcast channel, and we will be sure to share those details when the show is running. The other limited series takes a wildly different approach to looking at climate change. Team member Lily Russian inspired us to consider climate change as a crime and to explore it through the lens of a true crime podcast. I find the true crime genre so compelling. But climate change is huge. How on earth will we be able to investigate it as a crime? We decided to focus on a special and pivotal time in history from about 1997 to 2007. During this period, there was a dramatic and dangerous shift in the U.S. political landscape. There had been bipartisan agreement that global warming posed a genuine risk to humans and the planet. In fact, many prominent figures on the right and the left took part in national campaigns to raise awareness. Then, less than 10 years later, everything changed. Suddenly, half the lawmakers in the country refused to even acknowledge climate change was real. What happened? Who's responsible? Turns out the answers are not as straightforward as you might imagine. Lily Russian, Horace Moe, and I have been investigating this story. And in 2024, we will release our limited true crime climate change podcast. In addition to these special series, we will continue to produce our monthly show with guests and topics that typically do not get covered by the media. We will continue to help you in your own climate work by giving you expert tips and insights about climate communication. We will highlight solutions, and most of all, we will cheer you on as you do this vital work. Thank you for everything you've been doing for the planet, for humanity, and to address climate change. And if you have good news to share, we would love to hear about it. Please email us radio at citizensclimatelobby.org. That is the correct email address, actually, radio at citizensclimatelobby.org. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Spirit in Action. You heard excerpts from the monthly podcast, Citizens Climate Radio. You can hear our show wherever you get podcasts, and you can see our full show notes and transcripts over at cclusa.org slash radio. That's cclusa.org slash radio. And to tell us about what's coming up in next month's episode of Citizens Climate Radio is team member Horace Moe. Thanks, Peterson. Next month, you'll meet our newest team member, Erica Valdez. Erica will join Peterson and me for a conversation about the different parts we can play when addressing climate change. Eileen Flanagan, an activist and trainer, will tell us about four different roles that changemakers often play in change movements. These roles include advocate, rebel, helper, and organizer. So what is your role in our rapidly changing world? Join us and learn how to be an even more effective climate action figure. The episode premieres on Friday, March 22nd, 2024. Thanks, Horace. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to email us, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. If you want to figure out actions that you can take to address climate change and the impacts of climate change, visit our website, cclusa.org slash action. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to connecting with you sometime in the very near future. Back to you, Mark. Thanks, Peterson. And I do hope that folks will reach out to Citizens Climate Radio and take action to preserve our world through Citizens Climate Lobby and all of their work, ideas, and inspirations. Again, all kinds of links are on northernspiritradio.org to our guests and guest hosts. I'm richer by five gallons of maple syrup right now and probably more by the time I see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.